If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Rob, when did you first become interested in aviation? Oh, uh, there were several things. I grew up on a farming south of Chicago, Illinois, and uh, it was on the approach corridor for O'Hare Airport up uh, north Chicago. So, I mean, they were pretty high up, but those airplanes were going over every day. And then um, I read seventh grade, I think it was, I read a book called God is My Co-Pilot by Robert L. Scott. Uh, it's about his adventures as a teenager, first flying, and then uh, through World War II, and I was kind of hooked at that point. Plus, growing up on a diet of Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, some of the science fiction of the time, uh, I loved the flying aspects of it. But then I think the clincher might have been freshman, sophomore, probably sophomore year in high school, across the road from our farm was a state park, a fairly big state park, and that section of it really wasn't so much open to the public. There was no way to drive into it. You could only hike, and my older brother and I and my younger brother we decided to go for a hike that day, and a Cessna 172 came in, and there's a dirt strip hidden back in the trees. I mean, there's no way to drive to it. Uh, and the Cessna came in and landed, and the pilot was taking a break, so we just went over and started talking to him. And he said what he liked to do, he's from Indianapolis, and he would uh, take the plane, take a date up to Chicago for a meal, and then land back at that state park and, and do whatever couples do at that state park isolated airfield and then go back to Indianapolis. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea <laughs> so then i spent the next the uh, rest of high school and college just paranoid that my vision would you know drop yeah. below 2020 so i think most of the people who knew me in college probably remember me like this <laughs> on, the, on the, the boards as the professor was uh teaching and i was very fortunate I, I my older brother had done about a semester in college but he was moved away no one in my family knew anything about going to college. You had to have a college degree to go into pilot training in the Air Force. So I, I was stumbling through that whole thing. And uh, I missed application deadline for the Air Force Academy, which might not have been a bad idea because it would have been free and it wasn't a lot of money. But I was lucky. I went in the guidance counselor and he said, hey, we just had somebody here from ROTC, which I had no idea what that was. Uh, let me see if I can catch him. And uh, he looked at my transcript and said, why didn't you apply to the Academy? Well, I missed it. So uh, he got me a... a engineering pilot scholarship so day one i had a pilot slot as long as my vision didn't decrease so um, i was extremely fortunate i mean they even did away with the pilot scholarships because they needed engineers and so if you went to if you're going for a degree in engineering you couldn't be a you couldn't get a pilot scholarship mm. as well so i was very lucky four years of college and then uh, off to pilot training so that's kind of the, the litany of how i ended up where i was kind of blindly stumbling through a good portion of that probably <laughs> and yeah so you, you've joined the u.s air force can you talk us through some of uh, the aircraft you started training on and what they were like to fly yeah the amazing thing is as i talk almost all the airplanes and bases i was at are now on sticks and closed but yes i went <laughs> to uh reese air force base in lubbock texas and uh i uh, was married in september 
I graduated and was commissioned in May, married in September with a report date of the following April. And oddly enough, with an aeronautical engineering degree, nobody wants to hire you for three to nine months of employment. So I, I just had a part-time job at a McDonald's going, you want fries? And um, the Air Force sent me a letter and said, hey, we can move you up to January. I'm like, sent back immediately. Yay, go. Then they called me in about the 1st of November and said, could you be here in two weeks? I went, hmm, slinging fries, pilot training. We'll be there. So we showed up uh, on a holiday week. Uh, at Lubbock, Texas, middle of West Texas, nothing there but uh, tarantulas, tumbleweed, and red dust. And uh, started pilot training uh, in uh, November of 83. Uh, started the flight line in uh, January of 84. Graduated uh, at the end of 84 there and off to uh, survival training. And then, so my ultimate goal at that time, which was kind of a soft goal because I didn't really understand that much about what was involved. I wanted to go eventually into NASA to the shuttle program because, again, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek, I thought that would be an incredible time. But in order to go into that program, unless I was going to go get a Ph.D., which I didn't want to do, uh, you pretty much needed high-performance time test and then high-performance time to get into test. Test then could lead you to potentially a NASA slot. Um, Assignment night rolls around. They call me up there. And my assignment's a T-37, which is not high performance, obviously. And if it would have been a T-38 as a first assignment instructor pilot, I would have been okay. But it was a T-37, so now I wouldn't make, I w- even if I went to a fighter right afterwards, I wouldn't have the hours required to get to test pod school by the mm-hmm. age requirement. So all those dominoes fell over that night. Um, and, of course, at assignment night, as soon as you turn around from getting your assignment, your squadron commander and your ops group commander are standing right there to welcome you. So it's not like you can go, what the? So you have to be cool about it. We had an individual in the, in the class before us who got a T-37 as well, and he was of uh, Japanese descent, and he committed ritual suicide on the stage with a rubber knife. They did not find that amusing. The audience <laughs> did, but not our leadership. So uh, we were caution to keep our cool no matter what assignment we got so uh flying the t-37 i'll tell you it's a it was not an easy airplane to fly because the instrumentation i think was from balloons i don't know it was so (laughs) old um i mean one of our principal guidance for like instrument approaches no kidding we had to tell a student imagine yourself upside down because then the arrow actually makes sense that's pointing towards the, the approach guidance. So you've got to kind of imagine. And that's tough enough on a student who can't even understand radio calls and switch the IFL. <laughs> so it wasn't an easy airplane to fly in the weather, but it could turn on a dime and give you change. And flying in Lubbock, Texas, thunderstorms, puffy clouds all the time. So we would go out there and cloud chase a little bit if we had a little extra gas. And I had some of the most fun doing that out in the area. Uh, just yanking and banking. Um, I had one, Amarillo, Texas, had a radio station that was like one-tenth of a frequency above our maximum VOR frequency. So if you went to 107, no, see, 108.00, they had an FM station at 107.9. So sometimes while you're in the area, you can listen to music. And I know this is very cliche, but no kidding. I was out in the area with the flight surgeon in my right seat, Yanking and banging around, flip it over, and what comes on but the theme song from Top Gun. Of course. <laughs> so eventually he went, I really need you to calm down for just a minute here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
dude, I am so sorry. But he never had to grab the bag. So we were good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, pilot training, of course, I flew the Twee. I had never flown except for a few hours in college that the uh, Air Force paid for. So I was a little nervous about that. Um, and I, I'm backtracking. I apologize. Not a back, exactly a, a sequential, but... Back in ROTC, one of the things they do is take you to a pilot training base and give you a ride in a T-37. And so we did that. We flew to from uh, uh, East Coast all the way out to, it turns out, Reese Air Force Base. Uh, so like a coincidence, that would be my first assignment. And that was the day of the air traffic controller strike that happened way back there in the 80s. So we weren't going to fly. We were going to fly. We weren't going to fly. We were gonna, finally, they let us fly. And I'm nervous because my whole future is riding on going to pilot training out of this. And this is my first sortie in a in a real aircraft, a tweet. And uh, the guy before me goes, oh, don't be nervous. I got a couple hundred hours. You're going to love it. We're going to go up. They're going to do a you know sur- semicircle path and they're going to do a little bit of acro. It's great. I'm like, OK. And the way it works in the T-37 is they take one student up. They do the circuit. They come back. They land. They swap out students, cadets, and then they go out and do it again. So he went first. He gets out of the tweet, and he is the same color as the flight suit. He is completely green. He's incoherent. We're supposed to be trading off cameras. He can't even handle, he can't even hold my camera. But he was the guy telling me, this is going to be great. Don't worry about it. So I go on that flight, and he's like, hey, here's where we can do acro. And I'm like, no, I I saw what happened to that other guy. And he goes, okay. And we go a little further. He goes, come on, if you want to do it, we're running out of time. And I go, fine. And he does an aileron roll, and I went, oh, my God, that was fun. (laughs) <laughs> Let's do more. So, whew, uh, career crisis averted. I'm I'm going to be fine going. Uh, and I never did get airsick, except I got passive one time, and that was fast forward a couple of years. I'm flying a ROTC cadet on a Saturday afternoon because that's the way Reese did it. So you know, five days, twelve hours a day wasn't enough. We did ROTCs on Saturdays, and uh, we're coming back to land. And this guy was a future engineer. He never wanted to fly. They made him go on the sortie because it was required in the syllabus. And he was sick the whole time. And he was just fighting it. And we're about a four mile straight in uh, for landing. And he finally loses it. And the first blast hit the dashboard in front of him through the mask. The Ooh. second one went up the side of the mask and hit me right in the Ooh. bare of my neck. That was the closest I ever came to getting nauseous in an airplane wow. for my whole career. Yeah, <laughs> it was a mess. He was unfortunately the first cadet of the day. So we landed. He got out. He sponged the seat off a little bit. Second guy got in. We had to fly the second sortie. Oh, wow. In those days, you don't cancel sorties. That That's like, go see the squadron commander while you thought you had to cancel a sortie. Yeah, so, with it. Yeah. It, you know, it was the days of, yeah, just tough it out. Walk it off. So, yeah. Uh, the 38 was like a rocket. That thing was a blast to fly in pilot training. I mean, one of the one of the common things every student does on his first solo to the area is see how many aileron rolls you can do in a <laughs> row. And it'll roll two complete turns per second. That's its max roll rate. So it, it rolls fast. So pitch the nose up and roll, 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 till your nose down and then pull out of it going, oh, my God, why did I do that? Wow. Um I did not beat the record by far, and I was stupid for even having... So kind of one of my first lessons of, oh, that was stupid. Don't listen to other people. <laughs> um, came back as a FAPE, as I already talked about at assignment night. Uh, went to pilot instructor training here at uh, San Antonio Randolph Air Force Base and learned how to learn how to be an instructor, which 
I mean, it takes time flying with students. No instructor can play student because as we used to joke, the T-37 is the only Air, Air Force aircraft that carries the threat with it. Mm. Um, you, you can't pretend to be a dangerous student to the extent that students could actually be dangerous. <laughs> so that was an interesting time flying with students. And I flew with guys and gals that were just horrendous. And I flew with people that were just amazing from day one. You go, my goodness, why are you even having to go through pilot training and having to do every sortie? Because they picked it up so fast, faster than I ever did. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's another thing you learn very quick. You know, if you're humble at all, go through pilot training. It it bears down on you pretty hard for that year. It's intense, and so your my constant assumption was, I wonder if I'm even making average. And my grades, if I knew what I was talking about at the time, my grades would have said, Yeah, you're above average. Um, but you don't think that until you come back and start flying with students, and then you go, Oh yeah, I actually was a above average student because these are. <laughs> Yeah. This is what below average, if you come back from one of your first sorties and talk to your buddy instructor, a senior mentor, and go, here's what he did. And they go, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good student, actually, for this sortie. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, I remember at the end of my time there, so I spent about five years at Reese Air Force Base, all told with all that. And then uh, my squadron came in, squadron commander came in to give me my assignment. And I think my first choices were F-15C, f 16 No, F-15C, F-16, A-10, F-4, RF-4. And I went, heck, if I can't get one of those frontline fighters, then I might as well go fly a heavy and go to the airlines after this. So I think I had a couple of heavies. um, And he said, hey, congratulations, your assignment's an F-111. I'm like, what the heck is an F-111? I didn't even remember at that moment. And it was like number eight on my list. It wasn't that high up. And uh, oddly enough, the Razi... training camp that I had done was at Plattsburgh, and that was the home of FB-111. So I'd already sat in one. One of the first aircraft models I wow. ever built was an F-111. All of this came together much later after I got the assignment, and off to uh, lovely Cannon Air Force Base, another 100 miles to the west. So if Lubbock was the middle of nowhere, Cannon was another 100 miles towards the middle <laughs> of nowhere. Um, the home of uh, cattle yards and skunks. So I remember picking up my mother-in-law at the airport and bringing her there, and we just passed dead skunk after dead skunk. And she's from Illinois again and going, wow, this is this is nice area you brought my daughter to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, training through F-111s was extremely interesting. Having flown the tweet where, you know, 275 knots is max allowable airspeed, and suddenly, you know, uh, we're landing at 147 or 148 plus fuel. That's landing. So, and you don't land the VARC. You control crash it into the runway because it was designed by the McNamara era to be both Air Force, Navy, yeah. so carrier capable. Big C-130 tires on it. So you, if you try to flare, it duck walks down the runway and it's not comfortable because you mm-hmm. learned that one really quick. You crash it in at about five to six hundred feet per second, if I remember right, into the runway, and then and that's a perfect landing, and you don't even feel it in the cockpit. But as a soft from the tower, you look at that and go, "Oh man, that looks rough." And you're like, "Nope, that was a good landing." So anyway, <laughs> going through training there, learning how to do uh, air to ground, and uh, I mean, it was just a fire hose for the yeah. time we were there. But compared to being in T-37s, just working your tail off with an unc. 
the air conditioning in the T-37 didn't work till you climbed above about 10,000 feet in the summer. So you were constantly drenched, and it was just a, mm. an unpressurized, so kind of miserable from a physiological point of mm -hmm. view. Now you get to the F-111, and this seems extremely fancy and, uh, you know, laid out. It's still side-by-side -side cockpit, which is what I was accustomed to in the yeah. T-37, so that was nice. Um, got to fly with Wizzos, who... Uh, by and large, at least three times saved my life during my career in F-111s. I mean, I credit them with several saves. The uh, the training was intense. And then uh, my because I was a first assignment instructor pilot, and this was my second tour, finally getting fighters, I got first choice of assignment location. Yeah. So they only were at Upper Hayford and Lake Neath in England, and then Mountain Home in Cannon. Again, I've already been to Cannon. Did I want to stay there? Mm -hmm. So Lake was my obvious choice, and uh, I was lucky enough to get that. So off we go to England, and the first thing you do is show up at a, a mini training squadron there, the 495th, and uh, they work you through differential training and local area. And my goodness, I couldn't believe how complex it was there with purple airspace and all the how congested uh, it all yeah. was in and out of East Anglia and. Uh, that was also pretty intense. And you're warned over and over, don't mess this up. I mean, that could be, well, purple airspace would be international incident. You don't want to be the cause of that if you want a career some. So uh, it was pretty intense training there and getting to know all the bombing ranges. I was never, never an elite bomber. I did okay, but I was never a top gun kind of guy. Um, but I did the systems well uh, from my fate time. I mean, I learned all that stuff pretty well and I learned the procedures. Just not the dead eye some of the younger guys were, but the experience helped. And I showed up June of 1989 at Lake and Heath going through training, and we had our Tacavel in December. And my first uh, exposure to that was the first day my wife and I get off the airplane in uh, Heathrow and take the bus up to Lake and Heath. They put us in a queue room. We get into the queue, and it's just my wife and I, no kids at that point. And we're taking a nap, which was, we found out later, a mistake anyway. We should have stayed up all day to start setting our clocks. But we're taking a nap, and all of a sudden, we start hearing the William Tell Overture play over the loudspeakers of the bass. We're like, well, that's interesting. They play music, and why that? Well, we found out later, that's the beginning of a phase one recall uh, for uh -huh. exercise purposes. And I got to the point where hearing that, like, we were doing phase one recalls at the beginning there, like every few days or at least once a week to get ready for that tackle bell. Um, and when we moved into a house uh, just south, uh, just off of Lake and Heath, off the fiveways in Martin Mills, great little house, uh, I got so tired of hearing that phone ring at the wee hours <laughs> of the morning for a recall that I would get, I probably had um, a minor onset of phobia for the British telecom ring. Because <laughs> even... I don't know, a year or so ago, there was a movie on, and that ringtone played, and for a second, oh. I tensed up, like, time to throw on your Ken gear and head to base. So that <laughs> went on for weeks, and then we started into the um, the four- and five-day Salty Nations and, and Tacabell prep every... It got to be... It was every other week, and then it was every week. Wow. The commander gave us Thanksgiving week off, which was very nice of him, and then we had, like, another week or two, and then the Tacabell. By the time the tackle valve came around, we were just exhausted. <laughs> yeah. We just wanted it over with at that point. Um, I mean, we didn't want to fail because, well, failure looks bad and we don't want to look bad. But also, we'd have to do it again. Yeah. There's no way we want to do this again. That was torture. 
so that was December of 89. And then, you know, you fast track to the uh, 90. We're doing weapons training deployments in Turkey and Zaragoza. And then Saddam Hussein decides he wants another country. So, bam, we start deploying. Now, um, they quickly put together what we started calling the A-team, who deployed first. I was not on the A-team because uh, I was still fairly young compared to the guys they sent. And then about, I don't know, maybe a month later, three weeks later, they sent the B-team, uh, the next group of people. I was not in the B-team either. Uh, so the next group went just after Thanksgiving time, just at the end of November. Sorry, I keep using Thanksgiving like you'd know that reference. But uh, end of November, I think, is when the next group went. I was in that one. We called ourselves the Z team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one more team went later, and they called themselves the Z team. We went, no, 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 you're Z prime. We were Z. You're Z prime. You're, no, you're after us. <laughs> so I get down there end of November, and, you know, every day is like the war is imminent. Uh, our wing commander who was not, I wouldn't say beloved, um, same one that went through the Tacoval with us. Uh, I won't give you his call sign because it involves language that shouldn't be used here. But he um, uh, he would throw up air crew meetings like every day. And one day he said he had a flip trick because he kept saying, chances are going to war today, tomorrow, or blah, blah. He has a uh, flip chart. And he goes, gentlemen, the chances of us going to war tomorrow are, he flips it over, and it said 70-40. We're like, okay, math is not in strong suit. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're, we're just marking days there and flying some uh, local sorties and flying big packages at night, just uh, trying to work out the bugs on procedures, make sure we know what we're doing. We were planning to low-level night loft uh, weapons, which peacetime, there were only a couple people technically trained in that. So you're all now trained. And that was the extent of more or less the training for most of us on that night loft procedure. The first night launched, I wasn't on it. My Wizzo was Denif, and they wanted hard crewing for this. Mm-hmm. Second night, I didn't go because my Wizzo was still Denif. Um, and I kept pressuring the squadron commander to just give me another Wizzo because it's not looking like he's going to get better anytime soon. And uh, if you go back uh, just before this all kicked off, we had a visit from the general from the chaos uh, talking about the procedures and all that. And they laid out the loss expectation. It, it was actually very high. <laughs> I don't remember the exact number, but I'm thinking they were expecting like 35% losses in the few, first few nights of the war from wow. F-111. Yeah, it was huge. I, it got a lot of guys' attention. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot. Those first couple nights, the I remember the guys getting ready to go, and the look in their eyes was like, I don't even know if I'm coming back tonight. Uh, it was it was a very good sobering before those first sorties. And he, I don't know if those numbers were actually calculated or he just used them to make sure we were sober going into yeah. those first night. And uh, I don't mean alcohol-wise because there was no alcohol at Taif. That was no. General Order 1. So uh, those first couple nights going, that first night, we're watching this all happen as uh, the president's talking on the news about blah, blah, blah. We know our airplane already airborne, fully loaded and dropping that night. And uh, it's a very successful night. We don't lose anybody. They're on their way back. And fog rolls into Taif, which is where we were, Taif, Saudi Mm -hmm. Arabia. Solid fog. And we're like, it's been clear and hot every day we've been here. The night we launch, it's foggy. So they hold, they launch an alert tanker, they hold, they come back land. So I didn't get the first couple of nights. But then another air crew was doing an engine test run on the wing commander's jet. 
in one of the tab Bs, and part of the test run, they had to sweep the wings back. And there was an error in our weapons manual that we carried with us in the aircraft about how far we could sweep the wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, with I think they had a load of GBU-24s. Uh, how far we could sweep it. It said the full 72 degrees. Turns out it was actually 68. That was a typo. But that's what they mm-hmm. have with them in the aircraft. And they put a fin through the uh, intake, through the side of the intake of the aircraft, which the wing commander, um, despite the fact that the book said it was okay, did not take well. So he recruited him, and lucky for me, I got the Wizzo from that crew. His name was Reddy. That was his call sign, rather. My call sign was KY. Um, and that that was a great crew. I loved flying with Reddy. We had uh, we tried to find fun where we could on the sorties we flew. And um, For instance, one of the nights, I think it was probably our second or third night, he goes, hey, by the way, just to let you know, I got fresh batteries for my flashlight. Look, <laughs> and at three in the morning, when you're night adapted, yeah. and one of those LED flashlights goes off right here, I I learned how to trace the path of my optic nerve all the way to the pain center of my brain that night. <laughs> it was intense, and I'm like, okay, dude, you just night blinded me. By the way, you know the guy that has to land you. Um, so a little further down the road, where I keep a target run, now he's heads down in the vid trying to guide the. GBU in the target, so I just lean over and rest my thumb on his G G suit inflate button. So now his G suit's fully inflating Ooh. as he's trying to micro steer the GBU and grunting <laughs> the whole time. It hit. I mean, so uh, yeah. Anyway, we had uh, we had a uh, patch cord in the aircraft, which was yeah. not technically legal, but you know the crew chiefs made them for us if you paid them a case of beer, and every <laughs> night. After we cleared the target and bad guy land and we're heading back to Taif and we're weapon safe and not in fear of being jumped anymore or, you know, whatever, uh, we would we always had the same song queued up, which was ACDC Big Balls. So we would play that song. Nice. Just chill out, all the lights off inside the cockpit, chill out, look at the stars above and just... And then we started playing this game where I, I would set max continuous uh, engine temperature um, and just take whatever speed that gave us. And then you could slowly t- tweak the wings back as the aircraft got lighter and lighter, and the speed would keep going up and up. Yeah. And the game was... So some guys wanted to delay getting back to get the max number of combat hours. We just wanted to get back, get something to eat, and get into crew rest. So we would haul back as fast as we could, and, and without hurting the engine, that was the way to do it. And then the game became, how close can we get to the runway before we call chicken <laughs> and pull the throttles? And as I recall... The, the straw that broke the camel's back was like 15 mile final and we might have been doing somewhere around 0.9 Mach and I, yeah, idle, speed brake, sweeping the wings slowly forward because I can't overspeed the wings. Yeah. Um, get gear like right at the speed brake, lower gear, flaps and slats and it, it was literally on speed just over the overrun as we touched wow. down and went, okay, no more of that game. Yeah, we couldn't do this interview while I was still in the Air Force, or I'd be OSI, I'd be knocking yeah. on my door right now, probably. Um, anyway, we went, okay, no more of that game. One night, that reminds me, we're coming back, and uh, on probably about a 12-mile final to the runway, after a combat sortie, the whole cockpit, we're already configured, because now we're not playing that game, we're already configured, so it must have been inside 10 miles, actually. The whole cockpit lights up. I mean, just an external light is now shining on mm. our cockpit. And we're like, 
what the heck? We're already dirty. The aircraft's not that maneuverable when it's clean at the at any kind of unless you're a high speed. We're like, if somebody's lighting this up to shoot, we're dead. I mean, and it lasted for probably about four or five seconds. And we're looking around and I'm starting to go around and then it goes away. And we're like, nothing on our RAWs, no indications other than that. We're like, that's weird. So we land, we come back in, don't think anything of it, actually we forgot with all the procedures. And an air crew at Intel debrief in front of us goes, oh yeah, by the way, we got lit up on final, uh, external light lights up our airplane. We're like, oh wow, yeah, that happened to us too. So apparently several air crews this happened to. So we reported it, OSI investigated, because they're worried somebody's off the end of the runway getting ready to start shooting our aircraft. It turns out it was a Saudi Arabian police officer, you know, just a civilian. He was trying to do, this is what we were told through the translator, he was trying to do his part for the war and help us find the runway. In his mind, that was all that. If he shined the light, shined his car's light on us and then pointed it toward the runway, that would help us find the runway. I mean, he didn't know any better. He was trying to do, help, help us. And uh, we later found out, once they found out that, the Saudis decided to publicly punish him. And, we, and they invited us to attend. And we went, no, no, don't do what? that. He was, he was not doing anything wrong. I mean, yeah, it, it scared us for a moment, but he, it's we're okay. We're trying, they're like, nope, we have to make a point. And we're like, well, none of us will be there. So we're not coming. And we didn't. So I never heard what happened at the end of that. Mm-hmm. But it just reminds you that, yeah, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Not in the UK, yeah. and I'm not in America. I am in Saudi Arabia. Um, so little differences in culture there that you just have to make adjustments for, I guess. What was the atmosphere around on the base on Lake and Heath before you deployed? Was there a was there excitement there, or was there nervousness? Um, so all of it was kept really hush hush. Only the crews that were actually deploying knew. But suddenly those crews mm. are pulled rainbowed from other squadrons into one squadron. No one else is allowed in that squadron. You're kind of like, I could put two and two together. Suddenly, all those pilots are going to the BX buying sunscreen and Walkmans. (laughs) Not Walkmans, uh, Game Boys. Game Boys. Game Boys, right. So they were selling out of those. We're like, huh, I wonder what could possibly be happening. And, of course, the wives uh, were starting to figure out, too, what was going on. So uh, I don't think it was excitement as much as more a little. And granted, this has been over 30 years now, but it seems like more a little bit somber concern like we know we've been training for this yeah. i know my husband's been training for this but now this stuff's getting real so i think there was a lot of concern and then you know personal lives were going on too one of one of the guys that was deployed his spouse uh who was about seven to eight months pregnant at the time mm. at that time they had bought a house but it was a variable rate mortgage the rate had gone up and the dollar against the pound had gotten much worse mm. and so she's having to deal with all this stuff while her husband's deployed to a war zone yeah. we didn't have really communication with them at uh at taif uh, as a matter of fact i got there like i said in november it was probably a week or two before i could call and i think i had like a three minute phone call back home to just tell her i was there and safe but after that it was snail mail back and forth which is yeah. a far cry from today where you have skype and facetime and wi-fi and in a lot of the deployment locations you can talk yeah. back um during the war during after the combat started apparently our wing commander was calling back to his wife after everyone had recovered to let her know everyone was home safe and sound and then she ran a recall roster with the wives to let them know everybody was back safe and sound, right. which sounds great at first, but what happens when one wife yeah. misses the call? 
the first thing she's going to think is her husband's dead yeah, or shot down or something. So we politely asked them to knock that off because just assume it's good news and, and don't, and don't keep doing that phone tree stuff. Uh, meanwhile, my wife's at home and like right after I deploy, she goes outside to get the paper, I think, and the door shuts behind her and locks. By then we had a daughter. So she's about, oh. uh, eight months old in her high chair and she's now locked out of the house. Oh. So the neighbor comes over to help. Very nice, but they couldn't get in. They call the police. A nice policewoman shows up and she goes, um, there's not much more I can do. Takes her baton, breaks one of the windows by the door and opens the door for her so she can get in. Wow. So, I mean, those kind of stories are playing out back home. Yeah, and of course. Get word of them later, which, you know, I mean, it's that's trouble for us, too, because we're like, oh, my God, we've you know, abandoned our spouses to deal with all this stuff. And uh, But their, their spouse is a military member. And, man, they just they do what they do, which is keep the home fires burning yeah. and not burden us with that so that we can do our job there. So all those kind of cliches and stories played out there. Uh, true. It was, it was awesome. Uh, after the war was over and people started deploying back home, I mean, they would put up, put on fairly robust, uh, welcome homes. Everybody would turn out at the flight line behind the fence. The wives were inside the fence with kids and they would meet the aircraft. Um, I was not in the first redeployment SPAC because, again, I was one of the later ones to get there. At the end, our squadron was the one that was left behind, but they only needed half the squadron, so they asked for volunteers to stay. We had enough to stay, and I was able to go back home. And I just remember getting down from the ladder from the VARC, and somebody met me there doing an interview, and I don't remember who it was for. Uh, I honestly don't. Shoves the, my wife and daughter are walking up to me at this point, who oh. I haven't seen. I missed my daughter's first Christmas. I missed her baptism. I missed a lot. And he shoves the microphone in my face and says, how does it feel to be home? I go, how do you think it feels? And I just turned away because <laughs> there's my wife and daughter coming up. And my daughter, yeah. of course, wouldn't come to me. She she hadn't seen me in months. She had no idea who this stranger was who yeah. uh, getting off the airplane. So that was a little rough. But um, within a few days, that she was coming back to me. And I was there five days before her first step. And like seven days wow. before her first birthday, so I got back in time for all those things. So that was that was wonderful, and I I realized I like just talk nonstop for like thirty minutes if you want to. Oh no, Rob, that's okay. perfect. That's what I, that's what our viewers want. These great insights into your career and obviously Desert Storm. But yeah, maybe like, let's backtrack a bit. And uh, can you remember your first uh, mission in Desert Storm? And how did you feel on a personal uh, note? <laughs> so my first, I believe this is my first sortie. I mean, it's kind of blended over the years. Yeah. Um, but I believe my first sortie was like number 18 of a 20 ship package. Oh, and after those first two nights, by the way, the war went high, medium altitude. Yeah. So I actually flew a low level sortie. Um, one of the other crews who I was good, I was good friends with, they were on a low level ingress and uh, getting ready to do a loft procedure uh, with the bomb on an airfield, the whole sky lights, lights up. They get a little excited. He goes to step the aircraft down on the train following radar to the lowest altitude and accidentally tore the knob off the panel, which wow. went flying into the cockpit. So he's trying to <laughs> They finally just went, yeah, we can't go into the airfield like this. So they had to report and come out. Yeah. Um, anyway, so 18 and 20 ship. We go in. It, it was very serious. Uh, I remember being very serious about the whole thing. 
I remember being scared out of my mind, and I was certain that on the bomb footage tape after dropping the weapons, um, I was going to sound like one of the chipmunks, like Alvin and the chipmunks, if you're familiar, because um, I knew how t tense I was and how uh, nervous I was about the whole thing. And uh, the whole sky is lit up, of course, mm -hmm. with AAA and stuff. And we come back, listen to the tape, and I was surprised because here's here's what it sounded like. Ten seconds to impact. Laser should be on. I, I sounded that calm. I was not that calm. No, no. At all. So I don't know how I pulled that off. I don't know if it was photo ed or uh, audio editing, but sounded good on tape. Um, we come back and we're debriefing that sortie. And like I said, it was one of the big airfields. I don't remember which one. And uh, I just happened to be like number behind number two in the debrief. And he's going, yeah, it was really quiet. Uh, we, we didn't see any AAA or anything. I went, well, that's because you were number two. You should have been number 18. Because, by the way, <laughs> you picked them off. And the whole sky was lit up like yeah. it was on CNN. No, you're coming. But luckily, all of it going above or below, but not at our altitude. So we were very fortunate. And we had massive support packages helping us out with EF-111s jamming, RF-4s taking out, radar sites, you know, C-model F-15s for air-to-air -air cover. I mean, the the rules of engagement for that were pretty strong about if you don't have this part of your package, you don't go. If you don't have this much of your package, you don't go. If you don't, Because the first priority was aircrew survival. Second priority was aircraft recovery. Third priority was target destruction. So... Yeah. From an aircrew point of view, I thought they got that exactly right, um, and you know it, it all worked out well. We had some interesting mission planning ideas. Uh, again, our wing commander, who is not a patch wearer, but had patch wearers in our uh, in our weapons or in our planning cell, and he came up with the idea of uh, going after bridges with penetrator GBU twenty fours and. Uh, lofting them to the middle of span, throwing them down in the middle of mm. the span of the bridge, which you go after the abutments. You you destroy the bridge. You don't. So if you put a delay, GB24 makes a hole in the center span of the bridge about the width of the bomb body, yeah. hits the water, because it's delayed, it's a penetrator, and explodes. And we're like, this is not going to destroy the bridges. What, what is he thinking? We didn't realize what a genius he was because all those bombs probably killed all the fish, so the Iraqis had nothing to eat down the stream from there. <laughs> the bridges were fine. They just threw a 2 by 8 over the top of it, yeah. 2 by 10 and they're good to go. But, the yeah, there was no food supplies down south. He also came up with another idea that actually did work out well for us, and that was we ended up calling it tank plinking, um, where we would go up, we would just be given a kill box, and all the uh, F-111s were um, deconflicted by kill box. <clears throat> and you had a geographic area, and you looked for hot spots in revetments with our PAVTAC pod, the IR sensor. And if you found one, you dropped a GBU-12, a 500-pounder uh, laser-guided bomb. You dropped one, and he guided into that revetment. And you mm -hmm. just did another wheel around and looked for another one. And we just kept, we called that tank blinking. And wow, probably the last half of my sorties, most of them were those kind of sorties where we were out just plinking with uh, gbu uh, 12, 500 pounders. Um, but the GBU-12, unlike the GBU-24 the GBU was newer. It had the more sophisticated yeah. guidance. The GBU-12, we called it bang-bang guidance. So the guidance fans would, to try to keep it, the laser spot on target in the sensor, would go full deflection, then full deflection, then full deflection, to try to keep it on there. 
So it's eating up energy rapidly as it's falling, and it has a tendency to fall short of the targets. It was working for the tank blinking because all of our wizards were awesome, and they had little tricks they would put into the system to delay, so it had enough energy and all that. But he, he so the wing commander, I, will turn, I think he came up with that idea, or at least I think he got credit for it. But um, the later one he came up with, because of that success with tank blinking, was we were getting reports of Iraqi soldiers hiding in caves. Mm. So he thought, you know, it'd be a great idea. Let's launch a GBU-12 at that cave. But I want you to laze just below the mouth of the cave. And then at about five to ten seconds time to go, drag the laser spot up into the cave mouth. What will happen is the bomb will come down, it'll round out, fly into the back of the cave and explode. Okay, that's not how lasers work, because if you squirt it inside the cave, the bomb can't see the spot anymore. I, I think he got this from a Wiley e. Coyote episode is the only <laughs> thing I can think of where he got that idea. Um, it obviously didn't work, uh, but the tank clinking was very successful. And like I said, I had a, a lot of stories of that. Um, and there were other uh, aircrew, other aircrew had some very funny stories that happened. I'm trying to remember, Reddy and I had some other stuff that happened too, but I am just totally blanking on, on uh those well, stories, but one well, of maybe yeah, maybe right. while you like think of one here, um, Rob, did you ever work with the RAF tornadoes? Obviously, because you were from Lake and Heath, did you ever swap notes when you're on bomber missions or anything like that during Desert uh, Storm? <clears throat> not, not aircrew to aircrew, not directly, right? Uh, but I'm, I think our mission planning cell was working with some of them, and I, one of my clearest rem memories of Desert Storm was an uh, interview they did on camera with. A tornado crew dropping, was it laws like low altitude? It was the runaway runway killer that the tornadoes dropped. But they had to drop it at like an impossibly low altitude, like 120 feet or something, kind of right down the runway, which is where all the airfield's defenses are pointing. And this British air crew described their sortie going in and do it. And then once the bomb's away, we run away bravely. And that kind of became my watchword, my, my motto for the rest of the war. Do your job, run away bravely. <laughs>